Hey there, folks. Welcome to not another episode of the Cracked Podcast. It's something else. Our new podcast, Cracked Gets Personal, premieres today, and we're so excited to bring you episode one right here. It's in this file you're listening to, and it's going to start in a sec. Also, because we believe in awesome surprises, we've released the entire second episode of Cracked Gets Personal as well. You can hear that episode over in the Cracked Gets Personal feed. You can follow the link in the description here to get there. You can search the name Cracked Gets Personal. Either way, you can hear both first episodes of the show in that feed. And if you subscribe to it, you'll get the whole 10 episode season as it comes out through Digital Magic. It'll go right to you. Crack Gets Personal is a heck of a lot of great things all at once. It's our site's amazing personal experiences interviewing, it's comedy, it's storytelling, and it makes the case that being alive is fundamentally interesting. I could just keep telling you what it is. That wouldn't be a very good show. Let's just let you listen to it. Without further ado, here's the world premiere episode of Cracked Gets Personal. We had a, a young man who... Um, for whatever reason, thought that it would be really nice to get nice and close and carnal with a light bulb. And he got this <laughs> fairly, you know, good-sized light bulb, shaped like, you know, the one in your lamp, only a little bit bigger. And apparently that turned him on. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he decided this is something that was going to, uh, he was going to get up, get up close and personal, so he decides this thing's going to get inserted. Um, now, if for some reason I thought that that would be a great thing to do and I had a light bulb, you know, there's a way that I would orient that to basically screw it in. Um, he decided to go the opposite. So he, he went in a uh, big side first and then it got stuck. And the reason this sticks out to me is um, he, we have this just perfect x-ray where if you get an x-ray of the pelvis, it makes this nice ring and it is just perfectly framing this light bulb. Hey everybody, I'm Brandon Johnson. You've seen me on With Bob and David, NTSF, SD, SUV, and as the voice of Mr. Goldenfold on Rick and Morty. Over the course of my long and prestigious acting career, I've played a lot of weird fictional people doing a lot of weird fictional things. And then one day, Crack reached out to me and said, hey Brandon, get off the couch, stop eating that, come down and host a show where we talk to weird real people doing weird factual things. I'm like, okay. So they pair me up with Robert Edmonds. So about like four years ago, I had the idea to start asking strangers about their jobs and then, you know, write about what I learned for the internet. It kind of blew up. Hundreds of millions of people read our articles about making swords, piloting drones, working as prostitutes and doctors. Oh shit, have you met any prostitutes or doctors yet? Uh, I've met prostitutes and doctors. I haven't met any prostitute doctors yet, which is, you know, part of the dream of this new podcast is that, you know, if you're out there, hooker doctors, please send us an email at tipsatcrack.com. In fact, any of you can send us an email at tipsatcrack.com. And until we, we find those prostitute doctors, we've gathered up the wildest stories we could find for you, the internet. So let's kick off our first episode of Cracked Gets Personal. For today... Roberts brought me a bunch of stories from emergency rooms and the medical professionals who patch up our injuries and pull the foreign objects from our butts. Modern medicine's pretty great. Like, we all have a pretty good chance of, of surviving if, you know, a roundhouse kick goes badly and we wind up impaling ourselves on a door, thanks to, you know, antibiotics and, and competent medical professionals. So I wanted to know what their job was like. I wanted to know what we could maybe do to make their lives a little bit easier as patients. And yeah, mostly I wanted to know how many crazy things they pull out of butts. It turns out uh, every one of them had a lot of stories about that. My name is uh, Daniel Fulkerson. I'm a uh, pediatric neurosurgeon in Indianapolis, Indiana. And before I went into neurosurgery, uh, I did spend uh, four years as an emergency room physician. I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been um, in the medical field for 25 years, and I've been working as a nurse practitioner for about 14. All right, my name is Sean Conroy. I am a physician assistant. I've been a PA in rural medicine, primary care, ever since 2010. Uh, my name's Jared. Uh, I'm a paramedic here in California. I've been on an ambulance for eight and a half years now. There's a surprisingly high number of emergency room visits related to sex and a surprisingly high related to one person's sex. 
Um, you know, any any emergency room has their their insertion stories, and uh, mine's no exception. So um, it's always guys. Guys are just not very smart, and guys are, for whatever reason, very interested in putting things up there. Uh, so we had this guy who had this giant, uh, fairly good-sized dildo, and his uh, he soldered this iron bar to it. And this about four foot bar, so he could, you know, reach back and give himself a good rogering, I guess. So anyway, he got this, he got this, uh, he got this stuck, and so that, you know, happens. Uh, but now the question that he has is, how am I going to get to the hospital? You know, he can't drive there. He can't get a cab. He's got a four foot thing sticking straight out. So he, you know, he had a he had to find the baggiest sweatpants he had and take about a three mile walk of shame, I guess, sort of shuffle of shame, trying to get to the ER with this thing sticking out of him. First of all, so sorry for every guy named Roger. <laughs> I think you have to get to a place free of judgment at some point in this job. Like you just gotta accept that. Like, all right, well, I'm gonna try. I have to try to figure out what thought process led you to do this, but you know, I can't. I can't judge you for it. It's just my job to remove it. Yeah, there's something about being a doctor that when somebody says, help me, you go, okay, versus the average person who's like, no, no, I will not help you. I cannot help you. This is this is entirely your problem. Right, yeah. right. I, I am not your asshole's keeper. Right. Yeah. You needed help before you saw me. Yeah. So I want you to just keep shuffling down the road with that four-inch pole hanging out of your butt and go to an expert. How can there be an expert? <laughs> Yeah, I, I want to try and walk through that guy's decision-making process, because first, why... Don't say walk. <laughs> Shuffle through that decision-making process. Why why solder the iron bar to the dildo? Like, what is the... Like, is it is it a leverage thing? Yeah, it's a, le- it's a, it's a reach thing. It's a, I love that it's a convenience thing, mm-hmm. oddly enough. It's the craziest... There's this thing about the human brain where you are smart enough to build a church, but not smart enough to not clad it in red velvet everywhere. We have this great relationship with beauty and with efficiency that's like, you know, I made this gun so it can shoot behind my back. So I don't have to see who I'm shooting. It's like, why, why doesn't it stop itself from being so stupid? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, this guy is clearly intelligent enough to operate the equipment necessary to right. solder an iron bar. <laughs> to a dildo, but also is the kind of person who solders an iron bar to a dildo and then gets him, it's stuck inside himself so deeply that he has right. to seek medical attention. Right. It's some incredible. Sort of, he's an engineering savant. Yeah. Just like the light bulb guy. I mean, it's yeah. got to take some math to not crack the glass. It's not math we're looking at. It's patience. <laughs> it's patience. <laughs> you work up to that. All right. So let's lead into some of Jane's story. She's a nurse, and she actually disagrees with Daniel. He says it's usually men who do the insertions, and I think that might just be because he's a man and he deals with more male insertions. Jane, she has a a lot to say about vaginas. Sit back and relax. So uh, I got this this young girl, she was a teenager, up in the stirrups. She needed a pelvic exam, okay? And so I put the speculum in, and it made a clink noise. Now, speculums don't clink, okay? <laughs> and it was a metal one, and sometimes the metal ones, the bills of the, of the speculum actually do clink together. And so I thought, what on earth? So I pulled it back out and moved it up and make sure it was okay and put it back in, and it, it hit something, and it made this, like, clinking noise. And I thought, what on earth is going on with this? Because inside the, the female pelvis, everything is it's soft tissue, Right, and if you encounter something inside, it's going to be usually a feminine hygiene product, or it's going to be a prophylactic. Now, sometimes you find other things in there, and I kind of figured that's what I was dealing with. So I sort of opened up the bills a little bit, and there was something in there, something we call a UVO, an unidentified vaginal object. So I said to my assistant, "Go get me some forceps," and I I, I grabbed this this thing and I pulled it out, and she had. In art class in high school, made a ceramic satanic doll, and it had like hooves. Yeah, it had hooves and it had horns. And then she, yeah, she made it in class and she fired it in the kiln, and it was all glazed and painted. And then she had fashioned a felt cloak around its little neck. Okay, and she kept it inside of herself because I think she fancied herself like a 
I don't know, some kind of, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what she did, but she was dabbling in the, the, the dark arts, I guess. And so this is where she kept this amazing piece of art. Well, the problem is that it's not meant to be there, and she had an infection. And so I had to pull this thing out, and I'm like, well, do you want to keep this? And she's like, no, you can throw it away. So I threw it away. And then I had to treat her infection, but that was the best one was my ceramic satanic doll that I pulled out of somebody's. Yeah, and like what on earth is that? Don't you have any other place to put it? You know, maybe a purse or something like that. But you know, she was young and she was experimenting, and I mean, I understand. I mean, I got a pretty good laugh out of it, but uh, you know, that was my that was my best one. You know, when you pull all kinds of things out of there, yeah, you asked about the butts, you didn't ask about the other one, and you pull way more out of the out of the ladies than you do out of the behinds. Oh, oh God, yeah, cheese, strawberries, cheese. Cheese, yeah, <laughs> strawberries. You can see the seeds. Yeah, the strawberries. Parts of adult toys, but I mean, you're gonna find that in there. But yeah, it's amazing. Hard boiled eggs, potatoes, eggs, People potatoes put all kinds of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. What? what? Oh, no, you yeah. know, I I don't have like, but obviously, banana or a cucumber, yeah. like that's the stereotype. Yeah. Or cheese. Cheese, yeah. yeah. Who knows? Maybe they wash nine and a half weeks. I don't know. It's cheese, yeah. With wine, with cheese, with grapes. Who knows? Oh my God. <laughs> It just opens up so many questions, doesn't it? It does. You know, is it a craft single? Is it one of those little round, you know, cow ones? You don't know. Is it Brie? Is it Gruyere? We don't know. Oof. <laughs> My thing is, you have your nerve to put eggs, cheese, and potatoes in there and not have any salad. And not have any salad. Need- I know. That's not a healthy vaginal <laughs> diet. You, need, you need the greens. What's Where's your picnic? iron? Also, this doll is the best. <laughs> that is the a great best. one? That's the best. No, you can throw it away. Yeah. I'm oh. done with my Satanism. <laughs> Ooh. So, yeah. so cute. Yeah. Really just charming. That's something I don't think about, because I, I, I focused in these interviews on, like, butt stuff, because I'm like, guys are just always shoving shit up their butts and inside their dicks, but it's 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 comforting to know that women are, you know, anyone who has a cavity, they're going to shove stuff in that cavity. That's the thing, is yeah. that you keep hearing, like, as a child, don't put your hand in a hole, don't mess with holes. But when you're walking around with one, you are mm-hmm. just so curious about it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. Well, yeah, and why wouldn't you if, you, if you, if you don't know about toxic shock syndrome, but you do know about the dark arts, <laughs> why, yeah. why wouldn't you yeah. try to magic up your hoo-ha? I know. It's, uh, it's crazy that you'd put a dragon in her dungeon. Thank you very much, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Many, many other Magic the Gathering jokes. <laughs> that is insane. I want to know if she felt a little bit more powerful. Yeah, I bet so until the infection set in. Yeah, an infection definitely reduces your power. Yeah. What I found myself thinking is like when she went through that list of like cheese, oh, that's awful. Like, you know, all this stuff is awful. And then she's like potato. And I'm like, well, no, I guess that makes sense. Right. Like, that's, a, that's, a sterile, that's a sterile vegetable to put inside yourself. For everyone who hears these stories, there is a moment where they go, oh, no, I get that part. I get that one. That, yeah. that part I get. Even she was like, I can understand this. Yeah. I'm shaking my head. No, this is not the part that you're supposed to understand. Well, uh, wow. God it, bless. <laughs> If you want something you're not going to understand, wait until wait until we get to this next one with our paramedic friend, uh, Jared Dahlgren. No. The guy was high on meth and broke up the glasses and jammed everything down his, his penis. And uh, he actually had to have the uh, extra hole surgically created at the base of his penis because he'd done this so many times that uh, his urethra is nothing but scar tissue. So he had to have a uh, basically a, a new pee hole created for himself. And he was filling that up with his wireframe glasses as well. Then lost his tweezers in there trying to dig them out. And then I'd asked him where the lenses were. And he said, I think they're in my ass. And that, that is by far the most memorable penis-related incident I've, I've had. I, I can't, uh, it, it'll be really hard to top that one. What I love about that one is that it's sort of like like you hear about in Australia when they introduce like some f- species of frog to take care of this and th- this animal that's a problem and the frog goes out of control. Yes, like that's this guy with like glasses pieces shoving stuff in his dick. Like you're saying he's got invasive pieces. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, he get he gets the fucking little glasses arm stuck yeah. in there, and so you try to get it out with tweezers, and the tweezers get stuck in there, and then your dick's just way too full of stuff. 
Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just that's one way of summing it up. Yeah, I can't believe again. I cannot believe the steadfast resolve of these people to continue to venture further, despite the fact that they're getting themselves in so much trouble. Yeah, it, there's never a point, I guess, until like they, they, nobody pulls back before it's a real problem. Like, right, <laughs> right. I, I always wonder what was the thing that made them finally say, "Yeah, I should probably call a doctor for this." Oh, the tweezers are in there now, huh? Right. I got to go to the doctor just to get some tweezers. I do also love, and I guess meth explains part of this story, but but any time where your answer to a question is, I think they're in my ass. Yeah. 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 Not being sure about it is really right. what. <laughs> also, how do you say that? Do you, do you say it with confidence? Do you say, I think they're in my ass. I think they're in my it's ass. It's fine. It's fine. Or are you like, I think, because that is scary. <laughs> if you're really on the fence about it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's hear from Sean, and he has another vagina story, which oh. is which is charming. The best one I actually had is in this book I wrote, Through the Eyes of a Young Physician Assistant, for foreign bodies going into the body, was this prim and proper housewife, and she came in, she said she had abdominal pain. And I went ahead and said I'd go in and see her, even though I was actually just a student at the time, but sure why not, my female preceptor is going to have to come in for the pelvic exam. Because even with, with young females, they could have an ectopic pregnancy. There could be something wrong in the vagina. You have to take a look at it. It's just kind of standard procedure. When I get in there to talk to her, I asked her, you know, when did your abdominal pain start? She said, it's actually not my abdomen. It's a little bit lower, actually, pointing downstairs. I'm like, oh, okay, well, let me go get the table set up so we can do the pelvic exam. And what's going on, by the way? And she got her uh, Benoit balls stuck down in there and could not retrieve them. And I asked her to have a little spring on, because unfortunately, because of the Blink-182 song, I do know what Benoit balls are. And so we go and we get the, the set up for the pelvic, and my preceptor comes in. She's looking over my shoulder, and I stick the speculum in, and nothing. She said, turn a little bit to the left. So I point to the left, and a little Benoit ball comes flying down into the speculum, and I tip it, and it comes out. And I'm like, well, that one's on the left, and the other one's on the right. So I kind of start aiming up towards the right. Here comes the next Benoit ball into the speculum. So I peek up over the top of this whole big apparatus between her knees. And so there's just two of them, right? So that's correct because she holds up this little satin satchel. And says, they go in this little bag. If you can clean them and put them back, that would be excellent. And the whole time, she's just acting like this is something that happens from time to time. You get your Benoit ball stuck in your vagina. They won't come out. So down to the emergency room we go. They get them out, wash them back in the bag. They go, no problem. I let the nurse wash them for me, but I, I turned to see what she was doing. It looked like she was crying over at the, the the sink, but she's actually trying her best not to laugh in front of the patient while she washes them off, dries them, and puts them in their little satchel. This is why I could not be a nurse, because as soon as that first Benoit ball dropped out, I'd have been like, B-96, B-96. I mean, she literally was the California lotto for those brief five minutes. <laughs> God, I would watch the lotto if that's how they did it. <laughs> <laughs> also, I really love that you are not embarrassed to the point where you can say, do me a favor, have those cleaned. I'll yeah. be over here. I brought the bag. Right. <laughs> I, brought, oh. I brought the bag. Good <laughs> go. Lord. Yeah. Or maybe maybe going to the doctor's part of the kink. That's what I think. Yeah. I honestly do believe that showing up and saying, look at this pizza I just baked you is part of it. Because the amount of work that goes into it leads you to believe one would like an audience. Yeah. I feel like the the whole having them washed and cleaned and returned to your bag, like that makes me feel just a little bit little bit of a kink there. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's spoken word poetry or yeah. sexual kink, everyone loves an audience. Yeah. You know, we all we all everybody sees the world differently based on like whatever it is we do for a living, like garbage men and comedians and journalists and pornographers, whatever, like it, you, your, your gig impacts how you see the world. Like you, you, you look for jokes, you know, whenever yes. there's an opportunity, that's like just being in a comedy, being a comedian. So these people like spend their days hip deep in disaster and human blood and guts and also vaginal fluid and, and yeah. semen and stuff too. And they see the world very, very differently. So I, I, I kind of got each of them some anecdotes on sort of how, how this gig changes every day. So here's starting us off, Daniel, the ER doc. The question is, what things do I see differently since starting medicine? Um, and to go along with your example, um, it takes me totally out of a movie when they're totally off base with the medical thing. 
So um, one of the things that hardens you as a physician is when, uh, you know, somebody whose heart has stopped does not need an electrical shock, and that instantly takes you out of whatever Baywatch you're uh, watching. Um, I, you know, I remember when I was a med student and we watched Independence Day, the one with uh, Bill Pullman back, uh, you know, in the 80s and, you know, the 90s, you know, his wife, the president's wife is dying and she's there talking and we're like, you know, open her up, you know, tie some shit off. I mean, why are you going to let her die here? I mean, she looks fine <laughs> to us. And so, uh, things like that just take us totally out of the moment and, you know, kind of make you laugh. One of the other things you do is, is as you see people, you know, walking in the grocery store, you just start making diagnoses just by the way they walk and what they do and say, oh, that guy's got a disc herniation, that one's got diabetes. And uh, so you start, uh, you got to catch yourself because every now and then you see people as kind of walking diagnoses. Uh, but I think movies and TV, whenever, you know, whenever they do something totally, you know, uh, Sylvester Stallone cauterizes his gunshot wound in, you know, Rambo 2 with a missile and that's just not going to work so um uh that that colors you and uh and that just makes uh you know makes you laugh at inappropriate times in serious parts of certain movies yeah one of the things you really pointed out is that it's it's the the whole like boondock saints thing when he's like oh, i got a bullet wound i'm gonna heat up a knife and stick doesn't work no pressure no. pressure <laughs> don't yeah. burn your gunshot wounds yeah <laughs> because now you have swelling and yeah. burning around the yeah. area yeah and uh, internal bleeding yeah. right yeah right it's interesting because he what he didn't say is that his lingo has changed. He sounded like a guy talking about your car when he was talking about the president's wife dying and mm -hmm. saying like, open her up, stitch some stuff off, cut some stuff off. You got to get that done. And I was like, man, it's amazing to hear somebody at the top of their game in their field talking about the human body. Like, man, we got to put some tape right there. Get us some plumber cement right there. And they're going to patch it up, put a new coat of paint on it. We got to get in there. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. You stay human, even though you have an incredible knowledge about being human. Yeah, it's the same thing. Like, doctors are just mechanics for people. It's just we have lower standards for mechanics because, you know, yeah. it's just a car. Like, yeah. your, your Sebring breaks. Like, the family doesn't gather around it and, you know. <laughs> you go get a new Sebring. Yeah, you Not get the a same new... with a heart. Oh, shit. Actually, the thing I wanted to say about the burning the wound to stop it from bleeding trick is another clip. This is something I had to ask him in case I'm ever shot and, you know. I, I was gonna use an iron. If I get shot in the arm and I decide I gotta I gotta heat up a, a, a an iron like I'd used to iron my clothes and then I press it to the bullet wound to stop the bleeding and because it looks badass, is that not gonna work for me? Am I not gonna yeah, stop the bleeding? It's not gonna work at all. <laughs> you need to tourniquet. <laughs> Say I call you in the middle of the night and I'm like, Daniel, I just got into a bad situation. I got I got shot, I got a bullet in my arm, I can't go to the hospital because because I'm a I'm a shady criminal type. All I've got is the contents of a of a hotel room. Like, what what should I do to deal with this to the, deal with this gunshot wound? Like, if you're a mob doctor yeah. or whatever, like, what do you? What's the advice you really give? <laughs> yeah, take some kind of cloth, wrap it around it really tight, tighten as tight a knot as you can, and uh, then get treatment. But uh, direct pressure. Don't try to burn it. So you know, most of the people we talk to for this are seeing folks when they hit the hospital. One of the things that interests me about Jared, the paramedic. Uh, is that he sees disaster in a, a way more immediate way than you know even an ER doc tends to? Like you're you're right there on the scene. So let's uh, let's see how that changes him, fucks him up. You go through life before being in this field is kind of like oh you know everything's okay. My car will protect me. My seatbelt will protect me. People stop at red lights. Um, this guy's not going to attack me. You know someone's not going to come in here and shoot at somebody. And and you got to go through life almost. Um, um, blissfully ignorant, I guess you could say, um, until you work in this field and you kind of understand everywhere that injury can come from. And um, it, it's a little stressful at first, can be a little overwhelming because you kind of think of like, oh, you know, one time I saw this and that guy had this injury and it was, you know, really horrible. And, you know, with, I, I have uh, kids and, you know, I always think about like, you know, what, what would happen if they fell off and they were jumping on the bed or something like that? Something that seems so innocent uh, before, but, you know, you hear of people falling off the top bunk and kids hitting their head and now they have a broken neck and paralyzed from the neck down or something like that. Um, you really start to think of uh, the injury patterns that uh, happen with certain activities. And, and it's almost to the point where I'm like, you know, I love to go snowboarding and California's getting this incredible rain this year. And I'm like, man, I don't want to go snowboarding because if I fall and I, I fall backwards and I break my wrist, I'm going to be out of work. And, you know, you start thinking like that almost. And it's, it, it sucks, but 
it's kind of an inevitable part of the job. Yeah, you become a chef that can no longer eat at Sizzler. Yeah, it's like it's like if you if you're if you're into like movies a lot and you start mm-hmm. studying story structure and studying the way screenplays, you start looking at movies and you're like, oh well, this is you know this is structurally not that, or I, I don't like the way this is shot, or they kind of cheated with this, this like the way they they put this scene together. But like he's doing that with like, oh no, you shouldn't be walking that way down the street. There's just a half inch of a curb between you and those. Yeah. I, I saw that that happened to a guy last week. Like I'm staying the fuck away from that part of the curb. Yeah, yeah I'm sure there's two weeks of his life where he was like, I just want to live in a ball house mm-hmm. because nothing ever happens to anybody in there. And then was like, wait, there are diseases in ball houses because the balls are filthy and, and you can get SARS. Pulls a seven year old's corpse out of a ball pit. Right. <laughs> Somebody drowns in one of them. But that's the reason that's great that they they want to do those jobs because just like I hunt for jokes, these guys hunt for catastrophe and respond to a situation way better than I would. I would show up with a fake sponge, some big shoes, and clown makeup on. I would like to see if there was just one week as a nation where we had all of our comedians and paramedics switch places. Yeah, uh, there'd be a lot of uh, there'd be a lot of dead comedians. There'd be a lot of dead people in general, but I think there'd be a lot of really interesting stand-up nights, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All your jokes would start off, so this person's bleeding out. <laughs> so I'm trying to pull these balls out of her out right. of her. <laughs> we have this one phrase, which is, as long as there's two halves, I can put you together. Anyway, folks, please enjoy the vodka. Know that it's poisoning your liver, and you'll probably die in an accident, but enjoy the vodka. <laughs> That's been all of our time. Good night. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it, it, once he started talking about the different crazy things he's seen on the street, injuries and whatnot, I, I couldn't stop asking him about, like, the cool movie injuries, like what that shit looks like. Because you, you see someone get stabbed in a movie, and it's just like, uh, and then, like, camera pans away, guy falls down, like, Jason Bourne is off to go throat punch somebody else. But, you know, Jared gets the, the B side of that. Knife injuries can be really, really scary just due to the fact of uh, the cutting um, when people get uh, large lacerations. They can, uh, it, it can look really, really bad. I had a lady who got in an altercation with her husband over uh, cooking dinner, and they got into a fight, and a plate was dropped, and they were drinking, and he picked up the plate and kind of slashed at her, and uh, uh, he, she got hit on the inside of her arm, like where her bicep is, and it, and it flayed her open pretty well. Um, the fat layer was hanging out and stuff like that, and it looked really, really bad, but it was weird because there was almost no bleeding. Um, the injuries can look really bad, um, but they end up just being suturable, and you get a tetanus shot, and you're on your way. Um, gunshot wounds usually uh, don't end up like that. And uh, gunshot wounds can be kind of weird, too, because uh, especially if someone gets shot in a softer part of their body, such as the abdomen or something like that, um, Usually there's a bullet hole in, and uh, depending on how far they got shot from or what it hit inside, there might not be a bullet hole on the way out. And so you have someone with this tiny, tiny, maybe size of a pencil hole in their abdomen with a little bit of blood dribbling out of it, but they're unconscious, their blood pressure is, you know, 70 over 30, and uh, they're pale and sweaty and basically on their way to dying. And they, But they've got this little tiny pinhole in their stomach essentially again like not not what i'm i'm used to seeing in like movies like especially the i don't know I, it, it's weird how like wrong we get gunshots because they're they're not like most of them aren't lethal for one thing like it'll usually take hours for you to bleed out but there's also just like they don't bleed as always bleed as much as you'd expect like there's this story the uh, like back in 2007 or 8 i think it was i'm not really sure 100% what year but like these two bank robbers got caught by fbi agents and one of them was shot 65 times and survived and was conscious and by the time he got to the the, the er it's weird man people 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 don't respond the way to injuries the way you'd expect. Something tells me that at that point, I would have been like, you can keep the money, Jesus. Yeah. Just, um, just take it. You've earned right, it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think they have to Hollywoodize violence. So yeah. we, we have to be entertained by the way you meet your demise. We don't want the uh, boring graphic side and we mm-hmm. don't want the crazy graphic side. It's almost like if you're going to show me somebody getting shot, I want his head blown off in a way that... Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to see him like sweaty and pale and like seizuring from a pinhole and like but the same thing when Wolverine cuts somebody up. I don't want to see like the fat like yeah. pulling at pouring out of their, <laughs> yeah. their their sliced bicep. Please make our victims beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Make it make it at least theatric. Right. So Daniel, uh, who we've 
heard from a bunch of this podcast is a is a surgeon right now. He does pediatric neurosurgery with like brains and robots and shit. But he's also done normal surgery, and he has just about the worst story, which I'm just gonna share with you right now because it'll make the whole thing about the fat coming out of the slashed <laughs> bicep seem a lot less bad. I would say one of the you know one of the things that I remember vividly was basically a scene out of the movie Stand by Me, and. Um, there was a patient who had what's called a diabetic rectal abscess. Oh, yeah. And what that is basically is a painful boil down in your nether regions. And it's generally in very large people with diabetes, and you have to treat it, otherwise it could spread and cause real problems. And the treatment for it is the very advanced uh, technological wizardry of just stabbing it with a knife. So this guy who must have weighed... I don't know, 400 pounds comes into the surgical hallway and he uh, trundles back to the room and he's got an abscess and the surgical intern, you know, for obvious reasons, this goes to the lowest person on the, uh, on the totem pole. So his job is to go in there and lance this abscess and he takes one of my friends who's a third year student and, you know, we're totally clueless at this time. So the patient leans over the bed, uh, sort of like Chevy Chase and Fletch and uh, my um, and my friend's job was to stand over the guy and try valiantly to hold open his uh, butt cheeks, basically, to give access for the intern. So the surgical intern then searches around and finds this uh, nasty thing and is ready to stab it. Um, and it's tremendously painful for the patient, but they feel much better once you drain it. Well, people that have a lot of experience know that you stand off to the side, and this intern did not know that. So he went straight in, got real close to it, and stabbed it with a knife, and the reason that you stand off to the side is the pus inside is under pressure, and this is like power wash <laughs> pressure. So this just horrible, just the most foul-smelling, horrible thing that you can even imagine just comes blistering out, nails the intern right in the face with enough pressure to almost knock him off his stool. And it is, you know, this is made from, you know, diarrhea, and it's just, oh, it's just hell in a basket. And so my friend standing over this, kind of losing his battle to holding open the cheeks, sees this, sees this guy get doused, and just immediately starts to vomit. And so the patient <laughs> looks around, like, you know, what's going on back there? And then he looks down and sees... This guy's thrown up on his leg, and he just starts puking everywhere. So this poor surgical intern is now doused with this, you know, just horrible stuff, and two people just puking their guts out right around him. And that was just basically a Tuesday night at County Hospital. Taco Tuesday night. In every way. Listen, if you bring me something that makes me puke, I'm going to do it on you. Oh, my God. Yeah, it sounds like a fucking scene from South Park. Like, everybody's yeah. just vomiting and shit yeah. each other. Oh, oh or yeah. Or the pie scene from Forrest Gump, right? Was there blueberry pie? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's right. First of all, I love that somebody is so new at their profession that they get hazed this way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't even mind playing favorites in, in this podcast. Daniel Daniel is, like, my favoritist source of on medical things he's he's just full of great stories like like this next one in the emergency room you get continually surprised at um uh, at people who just kind of stupidly do not listen to their doctor and um one story that reminds me of that is when i was um in the emergency room and uh, a frequent complaint of someone coming to the emergency room is constipation and um you know that's funny unless it happens to you and then that's really uncomfortable so this this nice lady got uh was very constipated and, and went to her primary care doctor and and you know told him he was constipated and the primary care doctor gave her a prescription for two enemas and sent her to the pharmacy and said get these and, and you know let me know if they work so later that night i'm in the emergency room and i got a phone call from her husband and the husband says, you know, this is, he explained the situation, said she's constipated, said this is just not working. And he said, she, she just can't get this all in. And at this point, I was you know, a little bit curious, <laughs> and a little bit grossed out. And like, well, what do you mean? She, he goes, well, she was able to drink the first bottle fine, but she can only get about half of the second one down. And I said, well, you know, that's, wait a minute, what? And he goes, she, she was able to drink the first one, but she was only able to drink half of the second one. I go, all right. 
are you, are you, did your doctor tell you to drink that? And he goes, well, uh, and I go, you got the box there? And he said, sure. And I go, look at the side of that and tell me, tell me what the instructions are. And so if you've ever seen the side of a box of an enema, it's got pictures, <laughs> um, which show position you need to be in and the apparatus and the insertion. And, and he, he, he pauses for a while and I can kind of hear the wheels turning in his head. And then he goes, so is it a problem if she drank one and a half enemas? <laughs> so at that point I said, I got to put you on hold. And I just looked at the people around like, you got to be kidding me. So I, 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 to be honest, I didn't know. So I called poison control in Washington, D.C. And they just lost it. You know, it was about five minutes and I can just tell they're lying on the floor and getting their friends. And finally somebody, you know, laughing says, no, nah, it'll be all right. But she's in for a rough, bloaty night. Um, so... <laughs> Listen to your doctor's instructions. And know that they're going to laugh at you when you do dumb shit. Yeah. In her defense, it does look like a straw. It, do, it looks like it one looks of those. Like yeah, it looks like a straw. It's like a special Capri Sun. Right. Yeah. Right. And God love her for drinking the first one. Oof. Yeah, I feel like you double check after that first enema. Yeah. I mean, I guess they checked after half of the second. Oh, poor thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a rough night. All right, Robert, what do you have for me after the break? Well, you know how they have laws about, like, driving while intoxicated and stuff? Yeah. Well, I've got a story about how you shouldn't go alligator poaching while being really, really, really stupid. Awesome. We'll be back in just a minute. I gotta start this Casper ad with, like, an admission of guilt on my part. Um, Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, I've stayed at a lot of Airbnbs in the last couple of years, especially around the Bay Area. So I've been sleeping on Casper mattresses off and on for a while. And uh, I knew they like I liked them before they came up with the the opportunity to test one out. You really like it that much? It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really enjoy it. I don't understand how beds are made and what makes them not just a pile of soft things on the ground. But I sleep really well on this mattress to the point where it's been difficult for me to get up in time in the morning because I don't want to leave. I just want to I just want to stay in bed and luxuriate. I got to tell you, I know a little bit about how beds are made. I know there's some memory foam. Uh, this bed has been amazing because I'm like, I hadn't really messed with memory foam. They put it in headphones. They'll put it in those things that you sleep on in the the airport, like when you get that neck thing and you yeah. put it around your neck so you don't look like a doofus. But they used so much in this mattress that I'm fully aware the power of memory foam now. It's insane. A lot of people like it, not just not just you and me. Free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada. And, you know, most importantly, if you order one, you get to try it for 100 nights risk-free. And if you don't like it, They'll take it. You could just. That's the thing. Your mattress is going to last longer than your hookup at the bar. Yeah. Right now, our listeners can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting www.casper.com slash personal and using offer code personal. Terms and conditions may apply as they always do. So, Brandon, before we get to the alligators, I wanted to talk about how uh, working in emergency medicine fundamentally changes your conception of death. So here's Dr. Daniel to talk again about death. Basically, uh, for me, there is no way I would ever want to die in the hospital. You know, I want to die at home watching bad TV wearing my jammies. And the reason is um, doctors see that there are things that are worse than death. Um, Internal medicine doctors are somewhat uh, condescendingly called fleas, and the reason is because fleas are the last people to leave a dead body. So one of the things that happens is, you know, families bring grandma, 97-year-old grandma in, and they just keep bringing her in. At some point, they say, you know what, just keep her home. Don't bring her in for any circumstance. Um, One of my mentors, uh, a great neurosurgeon and kind of nationally known, he uh, started to forget things. And this is a brilliant person, and he, he got lost driving to work. And he said, you know, he was worried that he was going to have Alzheimer's disease. So he went down and he coerced his friend uh, to do a CAT scan on himself, and he got that and unfortunately showed an inoperable brain tumor. So this is a guy who spent his whole life operating on brain tumors, and he could look at his CAT scan and know exactly what was going to happen to him and could say, okay, this is what's going to happen with aggressive surgery and treatment of radiation. And he just said, look, I want none of that. I'm just going to go home and live what time I have. And so I think, um, you know, one of the, you know, this, I'm not sure where we're getting any comedy out here, but one of, the, um, um, one of the things that has been a real problem in the United States is to say that we are going to battle death to the bitter end no matter what. And, 
it's one thing that we do poorly compared to other countries who think, you know, you know, let grandma die with dignity. She doesn't need more lines and stuff like that. You know, at some point, just let it go. And, um, you know, that was something that we as a society need to take a better, you know, everybody's going to die. Um, and uh, doctors, when they see, hey, I don't want, you know, med students sticking me with a bunch of needles and I don't want all this stuff and, you know, I know what's going to happen. Let me just go home and, 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 you know, enjoy what time I have left. And I think there's a, a real, it's interesting to me, I've had a couple kids with severe head injuries and if the parents have any kind of medical knowledge, they just want everything stopped. If the parents don't, they want everything there to the bitter end. And if you end up with a nursing home patient, so be it. So there's a different perspective of seeing this is what it looks like a year down the road and two years down the road. And there's a real difference between the physicians and, and other people. I feel like I just learned that the Oompa Loompas were slaves <laughs> and that they didn't have enough money to afford the chocolate that they make. It's crazy to hear somebody be like, uh, no, nah, man. I mean, I, I serve this McDonald's, but I wouldn't eat this shit if yeah. I were you. It's crazy. Well, that's what you, you go into like surveys of oncologists, cancer doctors, and it's like they overwhelmingly say like, no, I, I don't want chemo. Like unless it's like a sure thing, like one of those like, oh, yeah, you get a little skin cancer. We can pop that shit like right away. But like if it's yeah, we need it's going to take an aggressive course of chemotherapy as often as not or more often than not. They're like, no, I'm just going to. Like, I know what that looks like. I don't want that for me. Which means basically that the medical community is more about comfort than it is about preserving. And that's kind of justice. Yeah. You know? Well, and it's also, like, I think just acknowledging that, like, well, usually it doesn't work. Like, right. Usually, like, it, it's not like like with this guy with his inoperable brain tumor. It's like looking at that and knowing, like, I've seen tumors like this. I know what the odds of the chemotherapy and surgery being worth it. And I know what the odds are that it just makes my last couple of months suck. Right. So I'm just going to enjoy them. That's amazing. Yeah. Doc- doctors do not use their own doctoring. Not not. And if they do, they, yeah. they use it in a way that's like, uh, uh, you're going to die to themselves in a mirror. And yeah. they're okay with it. I think that's what you got to do, I guess, to keep going because you see so much death that eventually it does just become, oh, you want fries with that? Yeah. Oof. No, and I, I think it's interesting what he has to say about, like, it's a problem that we fight death so hard here. I don't know how much of that is due to the fact that we like hide death a lot, like especially the way we do funerals, the way we embalm bodies, like that's all like you go to you go to India, there's like you can you can you can go watch by the side of the Ganges, they'll just light dead people on fire. Like that's right. like how they and it's everyone's around and it's like very public and very clear what's happening and there's no no nobody has illusions in their head about like what the end of this is. And here in America, like our richest people are like, I'm gonna shoot the blood of young people into my veins to stay young forever. My favorite one is I'm gonna freeze my head. Yeah. I'm gonna freeze my head. Well, what about bodies? They'll have figured that out by then. <laughs> They'll nail it. Right. <laughs> They'll lock that shit right. down. <laughs> No, some of that company's going to go to business, and then somebody's going to have a room full of heads that's just like, well, what do we do with these? Head museum. Yeah, anybody want Ty Cobb's head? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Also, the technology that froze your head in the 40s is nowhere near a refrigerator of today. Yeah. So good luck with that. You're going to smell weird when you come out. Mm-hmm. No, and also, like, what, people in the future are going to have enough shit to deal with without, like, what if we had, what if, like, we had all sorts of people from 100 years ago suddenly waking up, and it's yeah. like, oh, now, like, we got we got Trump to deal with, and we have to teach all these people that, like, we're not racist, and we're less racist, like, we're right. trying to, like, right. yeah. What's wrong with your neighbor? He's freaking yeah. out yeah. again. Why? I turned the TV on with a remote. Yeah. <laughs> he, he called it witchcraft. He's right. lighting stuff on fire. Right. Like, we'd have to have a moratorium on, like, no, you guys can't vote for the first 10 years. You have to learn, like, women women yeah. get to do stuff now. No, no, you, you can't vote to take away the vote from ladies. I don't care that you got frozen in 1908. We're like, not bringing that back. Yeah, we're not bringing It's also that crazy back. that you forget, as we as a people sort of forget, that science is an ever-ongoing thing. Yeah. And that although we expect it to be able to save our lives, the reality of the situation is we're learning as we go still. There is no magic pill or magic bullet. Quite the opposite, in fact. <laughs> well, and I just think about how uncomfortable I am with, like, Snapchat. And that's just that's just something I, I missed the boat on by, like, a year or two. If I was two years younger, I, I'm sure I'd be all about it. And now it's like, ah, oh, that's weird and scary to yeah. me. Like, fuck it, waking up 100 years from now, it's yeah. going to be terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I feel like it's time to get to some more stories of super, super, super dumb people. Here's Jane. Well, yeah, we had a guy who um, in Georgia was uh, poaching alligators. And he was, they were using, I guess, fish to bait the gators. And they were throwing fish, like, off the boat. 
and he had a fish in his hand, and he was kind of doing a throwing motion to throw the fish off the boat, and a gator came up and uh, got his arm. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a good one. Oof. But he had been poaching gators, and so he didn't want... He thought oh, if he went to the hospital that we would report him for poaching. So he didn't go to the hospital. And so he came in, and he was very infected. He was lucky he didn't lose his arm. And he actually went out of state. So he, he skipped a couple states and then showed up in the ER. And we kind of put it together because why would a young man in his early 20s not have a job? He was unemployed. He was able-bodied. And why would he not have gone to the hospital if he'd just been out, you know, fishing like he said he was? Then we kind of put it all together that that was his job, that he was poaching gators. I mean, it just made sense. We couldn't think of any other reason why he wouldn't be working. You know. What interests me about that is the detective work that they put yeah. into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really enjoy that someone's like, um, yes, ma'am, I'll need you to treat this. It's like, what is this? These are just sores. Yeah. Have you been using leeches, sir? <laughs> yes. I have an old job. I'm a gator poacher. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, just like also, I guess that says a lot about living in the South that like, you know, like Georgia, like, oh, he's got... Bite marks on his arm, unemployed young man. Oh, he must have been poaching gators. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. In Los Angeles, they would be like, chupacabra. Chupacabra, yeah. It's obviously a chupacabra. One of those mountain lions. That's insane. That's that's crazy. Yeah. Here's another good one from uh, from Sean, our uh, rural physician's assistant. I think it was maybe actually just a month ago. When we do call, the, the PAs usually do call. We overlap each other. One covers the clinic. One covers the ER. That being said, if one of us disappears and there's chaos in the emergency room, it's not hard to know what that's going on. And maybe I should go over there and check things out. So Chuck, the PA that was on call at the moment, he disappeared. I look out the clinic window. There's an ambulance. There's two state trooper cars out there. I was like, what the hell is going on? I better wander over and take a look at this. So I walk in, and there's our CEO because it was all hands on deck. And he's like, Sean, go grab a blood pressure cuff. So I went and I grabbed one best I could to come running in, like, what do you need with this? And Chuck, the other PA, is like, that's it, Sean, you get up there on his right arm. So I run up there, and they lift up the gauze, and there's this, this gaping knife wound in this guy's armpit up towards the shoulder. And so I'm putting the blood pressure cuff proximal to it best I can, because I know what they want me to do, put some pressure up there like a tourniquet. This guy doesn't bleed to death. Once things kind of calmed down, Chuck told me that it wasn't a gangbanger walking down the street that ganked this guy. He was opening up a UPS package with a steak knife, slipped and stabbed himself in the right armpit. And when he came in, there's just blood dribbling all over the place. He hit a major artery somehow. Luckily, we got the pressure on there. We got the bleeding stopped. We got some fluids in there to keep his blood pressure up. We got him shipped out, but that was probably the most blood I've seen on the emergency room floor in a long time. And there was pride dripping all over the floor as well. You ever notice that nobody's doing anything great? Nobody's like, well, this guy... I tried to save these puppies from a burning building. He fell on a fence, and the fence impaled him. Or someone was handing out food to homeless people and then fell off the back of a flatbed truck. Yeah. It's always, guy was opening up a, uh, a soda can with a shotgun, bullets bounced back, hit him in the back of his head. He fell downstairs, but he had just installed a shitting pool. I don't know why. It was just a shitting pool. He fell in the shitting pool. Two days later, he's infected. <laughs> I, the, the only thing I think that's a clean shit and pool if it takes two days to get an infection. <laughs> Vegan shit and pool. Yeah. That's also like, come on, man. It's an Amazon Prime package. Like, that's, that's, those, you, you don't even need a knife to open those. Like, a fucking steak knife? What do you, what was your game plan there? Also, it's a steak knife. Yeah. It's a steak knife. It's not a utility knife. It's not an exacto blade. It's a steak knife. They try to tell you ahead of time, don't use this. Yeah. This is a gun hammer. You need a paint roller. <laughs> Leave it alone. Use your keys. That's right. what they're for. No, don't even use your keys. <laughs> Although, yeah, speaking of using shotguns in dumb ways, we've got a shot here uh, again with some, some hunting accident stories because <laughs> he's out in the middle of damn nowhere. In regards to the hunting, I did see a guy that blew off his pinky toe because he's getting out of the truck to go deer hunting and accidentally shot the rifle at the ground, just barely caught his boot. There's blood and gore, and he's screaming at us for certain. He blew off his foot. Are you sure this is just a hunting rifle? Was it a hollow point? Peel off the boot, and he's just missing his pinky toe. And yeah, it's a lot of blood, but sir, sir, calm down. It's gone. We can close this up, and you're probably going to make it. Another one that 
if they're good getting out of the vehicle, they're quiet, they don't shoot their hunting partner or anything stupid like that, and they make it out, they kill the deer, I see a lot of people, they're super excited, they're getting into the gutting ceremony, they're going to get these guts and entrails out of here, and they stab themselves in the opposite hand, or which is terrible, because it comes in, now it's got deer shit all over it, they stab themselves in the hand, you know? So it's going to be a god-awful inspection. <laughs> Sometimes it's in the forearm, got to make sure they can catch tendons, get an infection in your tendons. That's not a good day, but more than anything, if they're going to shoot themselves getting in and out of the vehicle or jumping over a fence, I've never seen anybody do themselves in. Usually it's, yeah, blowing off a, a toe or it barely grazed me. Occasionally in pheasant season, one guy will get ahead of the other using shotgun, and one guy will get peppered by a couple of bullets, usually in the back, because he turns as soon as he realizes he's about ready to get shot. Yeah, he gets chained. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's amazing that people get injured because they're so excited. Yeah. That the joy and excitement is really what does the damage, not even the weapon. Mm-hmm. <sighs> well, it's the same thing. Like you're, you're, you're out with your friends drinking or something and like you try to jump over something or you do something dumb because you're, you're having fun with your buddies. It's been a hard week and you're a little bit intoxicated. Well, like hunting's the same thing for a lot of yeah. people. Like you're not sober. Like you don't, you don't go out to the woods with your buddies and a bunch of guns like and not have a couple. Like they make camouflage beers. Right, for, that's for a good hunters, point. Like, that's a good point. I feel like that is the big missing part of this story is how many of these guys are drunk when they shoot themselves. Yeah, it's yeah. incredible that kids don't kill themselves every Christmas because the way we do. rip open packages. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, horrible paper cut fatalities. Okay, so some people, hopefully not the kind of people who listen to this podcast, but maybe like grandmas or something, might take issue with the fact that all of these these medical professionals and us are happy laughing at stories of ultimately sick and injured people. And I don't, I don't have any personal excuse for enjoying these stories other than that they're, they're fun to hear. But our sources have a really good excuse for laughing about this shit, and it's called compassion fatigue, uh, which basically boils down to you can only care so much before you either collapse it on yourself like a dying star or start laughing. That is a serious topic, and that is a very important topic that gets very underreported. And uh, there's studies uh, coming out now about the mental health of physicians. And uh, to totally, you know, be a downer, uh, there is an exceptionally high suicide rate among physicians. For male physicians, the suicide rate is more than double the national average. For females, it's about four to five times the national average. Yeah, doctors are killing themselves at an astronomical rate, and we're also set to be short something like 60,000 doctors in the next couple of years because we're not getting enough through schools. Uh, And it's not just doctors, you know, nurses, EMTs, physician assistants, everyone who works in the medical field dealing directly with injured people has an elevated suicide rate. Are these numbers new? I mean, I think it's new that we have as good a data as we have on them, because obviously our ability to collect information on this is always new. But no, I mean, we've known for a while that physicians have an elevated suicide rate. um, And Daniel's actually going to get into that a little bit more here. And it is a very underreported epidemic um, and, and that's what happens. And it's not, you know, we get burned out by drug seekers and people looking for disability and um, certain jobs are more at risk of that. And, uh, you know, the American public, sometimes people are just very selfish and want a free ride. Uh, but also a part of that is the kind of crushing bureaucracy and, and, and the increased, you know, regulations that basically take your time away from dealing with patients. Um, so it is a very real problem. Uh, it's affecting the medical profession. Uh, right now, there's a projection of, of 20-some thousand doctor shortage within the next few years, and people are getting so fed up with the system that they're leaving. Um, I'm not sure I've got a perfect answer for that other than to recognize that it's going on, and now there's sort of increased efforts for physicians to you know, get help for themselves, uh, because we all, we all experience that. Uh, in some ways, you have to be a little bit immune to it. You know, for me, if I'm doing a tumor, I can't just all of a sudden get freaked out that I'm inside some kid's head. I got to have some professional uh, detachment. Um, but at the same time, um, you have to, you know, remember that this is, you know, it's not the car, it's, it's somebody's child. Um, there's been a number of times where I've had a medical student that when everything's all draped out, 
and uh, you're just looking at the anatomy and, and they're fine and then you take off the drapes and all of a sudden you see that's a person under there and then then the students would faint so they wouldn't faint during the surgery they'd faint when you take everything down and and see that yeah that's a that's a seven-year-old child with uh, stuff sticking in his head um, so compassion fatigue and burnout are, are, are an epidemic and um, something that's going to need to be addressed because there right now there is um, about a, if you take a large medical school graduating class, um, that many doctors per year commit suicide. So we lose one medical class a year from a major medical school. That is insane. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of loss. That's a lot of loss. And it's loss of like, I mean, not to devalue, you know, everybody else, but like, that's like the most valuable segment of society is the yeah. doctors is the yeah. people whose job is to keep everyone else alive. And for whatever reason, like, I feel like it's got to be us failing them if they're that, like, that's not, it's not their fault that this job burns you out. How can it not? It's like, there's, there's somewhere in which, I don't know, society, the government, us, their friends and family and, and fellow citizens are not supporting them enough or are not making sure they get enough support. Well, we sue them to death. Yeah, we sue them we to say death. That, yeah. We say that they get overpaid. Mm -hmm. um, we, we say that they have God complexes. I've yeah. never heard anybody use that phrase yeah. on other people. Like, you know, with doctors, they get crapped on because they're part of that intellectual class mm -hmm. that us dummies like to pick on. It's amazing that the first two things he said he got sick of was the paperwork and the people who don't really have an illness. Yeah. Just coming in to get drugs. Well, yeah, especially since like you, one of the things he told me in an earlier interview we did a few years ago is that like you'll have, you'll sit down with a little child who you're trying to like prepare to have like brain surgery that, you know, the kid probably won't survive. And then your next patient is somebody who you're like, you know, they don't really have a back problem. They just want to get hydrocodone from you. And it's like, whew, In my defense, I, I really did need hydrocodone that day. I mean, we all need hydrocodone, Brandon. That's not the, like... We go to Mexico like decent people and we buy it from the pharmacy, right. <laughs> put it in the boot of our car and drive it back up north. That's, that's the ethical way to handle this. <laughs> I wanted to kind of drill into a little bit what a bad day, a really bad day for an emergency medical professional is. And thankfully, Jared, our EMT friend, uh, had just a, like the worst day. I've never had a day this bad. Luckily, I've only really had one incident um, at work where it was... Um, really um, emotionally draining, I guess you could say. Um, the talk about mental health with first responders and, and PTSD and all that kind of stuff is something that's just really coming to light, which is, I believe, a very good thing. Um, we have so many people that are lost every year to, to suicide and, you know, alcoholism and drugs and stuff like that. It's extremely sad. Um, on that note, we just had a coworker last year who uh, committed suicide just prior to coming into work and nobody would have guessed a thing was wrong with them So um, I'm kind of glad you brought this up, you know PTSD and depression and stuff like that is very real in first responders And a lot of people don't really talk about it that much because we're supposed to be the ones that are uh, strong and We're there to help and we know what to do and you know We're supposed to be the calm when everybody's you know freaking out and stuff like that, but um, it's something that a lot of people show on scene, but uh, after the call and at home and stuff like that is when things can really start to come apart. But um, um, yeah, it was a while back I had a call for a younger female with difficulty breathing. We show up on scene and this, this lady's sitting on the floor of her apartment and there's blood on the floor next to her. She's just coughing up bright red blood. And uh, she turned out she was a resident physician at one of the local hospitals and uh, she is diagnosed with lung cancer. She's only like 25 years old. Um, she's getting treatment, and uh, but still attending her residency program and uh, still very well on her way to become a doctor, which I thought was extremely admirable. You know, you get, you get diagnosed with this horrible disease and you're doing this debilitating treatment, but she's still um, doing everything she needed to do to become a doctor. Um, but she was just having difficulty breathing, coughing up all kinds of blood. And, um, in that case, there was really nothing I could do for her. We were a few minutes out from the hospital, so we just loaded her up and transported her code three to the hospital and um, got her there and transferred care. And uh, they had ended up stabilizing her, but um, I was outside doing my paperwork and I came back in to get a signature on my uh, PCR. and. 
I walk into the room and she just kind of sits up in the bed. She's got this look on her face and she starts coughing and coughing and these giant blood clots are just coming out of her mouth. Um, and then she just kind of lays back in the bed and all of a sudden next thing you know she was in cardiac arrest and the ER staff is doing CPR on her and um, I stood there and watched uh, the duration of her code and you know they did everything they could for her. They worked on her for well over half an hour. They had people coming from upstairs that normally don't come into the ER trying to help her out um, and there was nothing they could do for her. She ended up passing away and I found out later that she probably had an aneurysm in her lung that ruptured and so she essentially drowned from the bottom up in her own blood in her lungs and uh, that was really hard to watch because it was just someone that was so young had so much going for them was doing so good and uh, was going to go on to do a lot more good in the world and help other people to just be taken away you know within a matter of minutes and uh, uh, I just felt really helpless after that one because on scene there was nothing we could do. She was awake and talking, so we couldn't put a tube down her throat for her because she wouldn't be able to tolerate it. Um, and the amount of blood that was coming out, it was, you know, we're suctioning and stuff like that, but we couldn't keep up. And same thing in the hospital, it just got away from them and, and you know, they did everything they could. They did everything absolutely right, but it was just something that wasn't going to uh, stop. And so we cleared that call and uh, go back into service and our very next call was for uh, someone who had a spontaneous abortion at home so this lady had lost her her child when she was um, a couple months pregnant so it's an actual um, there was an actual visible fetus on scene which was kind of tough to to witness and then so after that call um, we go back into service again and um, our very next call is a cardiac arrest at home and uh, this guy had, uh, went into cardiac arrest at his house and uh, family was on scene there's little kids running around and stuff like that asking about grandpa and he was he has, had passed away earlier and they'd you know like I talked about earlier nobody found him for a little while so he was um, he was beyond saving and so we had to call him in front of family and kids on scene there and stuff like that and you know they start getting upset and, and crying and, and uh, uh, basically grieving and stuff like that and it is just three calls in a row that were very you know helpless couldn't do anything for anybody and uh, that was just a, a tough day you know you start thinking about your own kids and being away from them and um, it got to the point where I got back in the ambulance and I got angry about something that was very insignificant and I punched the dash of the ambulance a few times and uh, uh, tears coming out of my eyes and stuff like that and I was like you know it's time to go home <laughs> time to go home um, but luckily it was on my last day of the week and so I had several days off before I came back and um, thankfully um, most if not all um, uh, departments and systems have a uh, what's called a CISM uh, critical incident stress management program uh, that can be activated by anybody at any time and uh, we actually requested to speak with them and it's usually peers other people that are in the field that they'll sit and talk with you and um, give you a place to kind of vent your feelings and frustrations and, and stuff like that and try to get everything off your chest before you go home for the day and uh, then they give you periodic checkups they'll call you every couple days to make sure everything's okay um, but it was a I was glad we had that because that was a very um, trying and very emotionally um, draining experience for sure. And luckily, that's the only one I've had so far. But you know, you're in this field for any length of time. It's not going to be the it's not going to be the last time. I know that. So cyclical. You know, they yeah. they can deal with it for a certain amount of time, and then they become human, and they start to feel, and then they do whatever it takes to go back to being able to do it again. It's amazing. Well, and I think the other thing that's really interesting about that, because you, you're talking about, you know, that's the most stressful day he could come up with. This is a guy who has seen gunshot wounds, has seen knife wounds, told us about all that. Th those aren't what stressed him out. It was the cases where he couldn't do anything, where he felt right. helpless. That was the thing. They did, um, they did studies of uh, fighter pilots and co-pilots during the Vietnam War, and they found out that, because you've got like a navigator and then you've got the actual pilot, and they found out that in the days up until the mission, 
the pilot's stress levels spiked mm -hmm. and the navigator's stress levels were incredibly low. But during the mission, the navigator had incredibly high stress levels and the pilot had no stress. And the theory is that it's because, well, prior to the mission starting, the pilot has no control. It's all the navigator. And so the navigator feels fine because they're in control. They're doing a job. They know exactly what needs to happen. But when they're actually in the air on a mission, the navigator can't do anything. The pilot's able to actually control the craft. And so the pilot's not. Like, it's, it is that, that, that lack of control, that feeling like you can't do anything. Like I think that's what, what breaks a lot of these guys in the end. After having been able to do so yeah, much prior, yeah. you've been a hero so many times yeah. that when you run up on a situation where you're no longer able to fix it, it's got to be devastating. Or three situations in a row yeah. where there's just nothing. Yeah. You're, just, you're just watching. Yeah. Well, Brandon, you got a good joke you want us to close this out on? I don't ride tandem bikes. You may see tandem bikes everywhere in Santa Monica. I don't do it because uh, you cannot control. I don't want to be the navigator. Besides, I get tired. I date bigger women. It's a lot of work for me. <laughs> so like a paramedic, I feel the same way, you know, on the days that I cannot seem to get that bike up the hill. It's crushing. Yeah. Three tandem bike rides in a row and you're just punching walls. That's right. <laughs> well, that's about all the time we have for today. <laughs> Thank you for everything that you do, though. I don't know how they keep going back. It's got to be the, the insertion stories. It's like yeah. a little bit of sunshine on your soul. I got to say, you know, I do the same job. It's just with jokes. So I was listening to a lot of those stories and I was like, I'm under the same pressure. I'm under the exact same pressure. Like right down to holding the guy's ass cheeks open, <laughs> <laughs> vomiting down the back of his right. leg. It's hard for me to remember all those details. That's the hard part of my job. Mm -hmm. Now the ass cheeks. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people don't realize how, how big that is in the comedy world. Oof. Yeah, holding, holding open ass cheeks. <laughs> Cracked Gates Personal has been produced by Robert Evans, Brett Rader, and Alex Schmidt. It was engineered by Brett Rader and edited by Jane Marie and Brett Rader. Special thanks to Jane Marie and Jack O'Brien. Check out our next episode, where we'll be diving into the opioid crisis in America and speaking to some former addicts about what it's really like to kick heroin. Imagine the absolute worst flu of your life and you know not being able to get off the couch and for $20 and a block walk away. That's kind of when it, you know, it stopped being recreational and began becoming an addiction maintenance. For Robert Evans, I'm your host, Brandon Johnson. Thanks for listening. Oh, hey, everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkie, the sidekick that Dave Holmes never wanted. You're not a sidekick. You are a full co-host. Oh, please. I should be so lucky to have Come that title. on. We are on an equal footing here. And homophilia. Homophilia. It's uh, all about us, mm -hmm. me and Matt, mm -hmm. talking to a wide variety of LGBTQI+. Uh, exclamation point individuals about mm -hmm. their lives about their their pop culture diets mm -hmm. what they're watching on TV what they're loving and and who they're loving who so they're loving. we're gonna take a deep dive into their personal lives mm -hmm. ask some very intrusive questions yep. you know about what their current dating status is what how did they come out what was their biggest heartbreak uh, what's going on in their grinder account can we see their grinder account can we improve their grinder account oh yeah <laughs> we'll be uh, releasing new episodes every Friday. Homophilia is coming to you uh, beginning Friday, August 11th, right here on Earwolf. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.